0: You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 105. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope your week is going wonderfully so far. Today's episode is sponsored by jewelry company, AndreaMontgomery.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be doing a mini interview with the founder, Andrea herself, about her designs, how she got started, and more. And before we get into today's topics, I wanted to just catch up with you for a little bit and share what's been going on in my life thus far. I have just wrapped up Life with Intention online in the fall round of the class recently in the last few weeks, and I've been focusing a lot on the house projects that have been underway recently. I've been trying to get them done before the Michigan winter sets in, and you can see all the progress if you're interested in checking it out at Jess C as a new couch lively. In terms of the October Favorites episode, I'm sorry it did not get out in time for this month as I had hoped it would. I hope to continue with November and December going forward, but right now I've been working with my new producer, Joe, for The Lively Show, finding a system that will allow me to spend less time in the editing process and more time creating content. So as we're figuring that out, we're hoping to free up more hours for me to start doing more of those Tuesday episodes. In addition, the holidays are coming up, which brings me to today's topic and guest. Today, we're speaking with Isabel Foxen Duke of isabelfoxenduke.com about the nuances of intuitive eating and how to eat intuitively during the holidays. Isabel is a coach, as she says in her own words, that helps people stop feeling crazy around food. This episode's gonna go into the 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0 levels of intuitive eating and how we can use this approach before, during, and after the holidays in particular. And hang on tight, Isabel and I are two fast talkers who hit it off in this episode. This is a fast-paced episode with so much to share. Let's go to the show. Isabel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Your
1: show is just like, you know, apparently everyone is obsessed with it that I know. So I'm very, very honored to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you here right around the holidays, especially. We have been planning this episode for a long time, and I knew I wanted to have you right before the holidays because I feel like this is the perfect time to address this subject in particular. So before we get going, tell us how you got to where you are. So I was a woman who struggled with food and my weight for an
1: incredibly long period of time as so many women do in in the very heavily diet culture in which we live. And so I went on my first diet when I was three years old. Three? Yep, three years old. My pediatrician put me on a diet. I wasn't consciously dieting. My food was being restricted by my parents who were doing what they were told by my doctor. Um, But essentially, you know, I was a slightly fat baby on the baby BMI scale.
0: They have a baby BMI
1: scale. The second you're born, there's a BMI scale. So yeah, so when I was three, apparently, I guess I was like a heavier than average for my height baby, which is literally all via my means, it's not necessarily an indicator of much else. And I've been pretty much dieting ever since. I mean, I, I just basically I always say that I went on my first diet when I was three, because I think that some women have an experience of this moment that came around where they realized that they became conscious of their bodies and started dieting and started trying to manipulate their food and their weight. I have no memory of that happening. I have been dieting since as long as I can remember. So I literally don't even have a remember of, I don't even have a memory of eating normally in quotes, if that makes sense. It's incredibly sad. It breaks my heart to think about little me. Grew up my entire life just hating my body, thinking there was something wrong with my body, you know, constantly feeling like I needed to lose weight. What's interesting is I actually did slim down quite a bit when I was a kid and I still thought I was you know i was dysmorphic about it i still i thought that i my body was too big and so dieting my whole life and also binge eating for the most part most of my life i mean I, and i think that this is a you know common experience for most dieters we've all heard the phrase diets don't work 95% of the time they fail and ultimately can also lead to rebound weight gain in the long run and that was certainly my experience you know i was up and down and up and down and up and down the trend actually once i hit a certain point started to become more up and up it would be kind of like I'd lose five, I'd gain ten, I'd lose fifteen, I'd gain twenty, you know that kind of thing. I think a lot of women deal with this. This is not a unique story, so but to differing degrees, you know, women deal with this to differing degrees. I, you know, my diet binge cycle became more and more aggressive and intense all the way through high school. And it wasn't until I was nineteen that I actually like sought help. Basically, you know, I got to a point where I was just so desperate, I felt like I was either obsessing about food, obsessing about everything that I was putting in my mouth, constantly feeling like oh my gosh, I have to control every moment. You know, I used to I grew up thinking I want to be a nutritionist just because that was all I could think about. So I thought, well, this must be my passion because all I can think <laughs> about is food because all I can think about is trying to lose weight. I can relate to that.
0: Well, at least overthinking. I never wanted to be the nutritionist. I can relate for nine years of overthinking about that more than anything else. Exactly.
1: It's an unfortunately common experience based on just like massive cultural
0: problem. Wait, I have a question for you though. Yeah. yeah. So you, at 19, you go to get help. But all through that childhood, were you seeing the modeling of healthy eating behavior around you? Or was it all unnatural eating behaviors around you as well?
1: It's a good question. And it's really hard to answer because my parents definitely were weight conscious and were definitely dieters. They were a product of a diet culture world and And the thing is, is dieting in general has become so normalized. in fact, I think now it's it's glorified. You know, we should all be trying to lose weight, and I think that that kind of created a situation where not everyone was as crazy as with the ups and downs as I was. I was definitely a more extreme diet binger, meaning my diets tended to be more extreme, my binges tend to be more extreme. You know, I was really yo-yoing in a very intense way. But all around me, for all I could tell, I imagined that my problem was I can't control myself around food. My body's not good enough. I need to get my food under control. And the only way that I can think to do that is to just try and exert more forcible
0: control through dieting. I just need to think about it more. Just work on it harder.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That was the only solution. I mean, everyone around me, when you know, when your mind, you're you're 15 years old, let's say, and you think, oh my gosh, I have a weight problem. My body's not good enough. The only solution anyone's really giving to you is dieting. Oh well, maybe you shouldn't eat that thing on your plate, or oh, do you really need seconds, or oh, you know, it's all sort of this version of the answer is in how you control your food, you know, and how you restrict your food. So even though neither of my parents were nearly as you know crazy around food as I am, I mean, you would you would call them normal. You know, there were sort of like normal products of of a diet culture in which we live that I think, you know, a lot of people behave that way and, and don't necessarily think anything about it. But for me, no one was giving me a solution to my problem outside of telling me what I already knew, which was try to eat less, you know, and that was like the only solution that I ever got in my mind.
0: So you find yourself at 19, you go get help. And you think you're going to be a nutritionist. What happens next? I knew I needed to fix my
1: behaviors before I could go become a nutritionist. So that, that much I knew. But I went and I went to see you know, various therapists. I got, sought all sorts of clinical treatment for binge eating because that was really how I thought about my problem initially was my problem isn't the dieting. It never occurred to me that, that my dieting was a problem because everyone diets. It's not a big deal. It's what you do when you're trying to lose weight. I thought that my problem was that I couldn't stick to my diet and that I was out of control around food. In essence, I was, I was addicted to food. And at the time, it didn't occur to me that my dieting actually was propelling that the rebellious binge eating cycle that people like Janine Roth are talking about and other people in the intuitive eating movement are talking about.
0: Yeah, what you restrict
1: persists. Exactly, so it didn't occur to me that trying to control my food was actually what was causing me to become out of control. My most popular blog post to date, when you go to my website, The first blog post you're going to see is this blog post called, Have You Fallen Off the Wagon? And that eating this food is not okay. This particular type of behavior with food is not okay. You know, it's kind of just a matter of time before you fall off that wagon. I think that that's one of the greatest things about intuitive eating, which we're going to talk about more in this interview, is this idea of, can you get rid of your wagons? Can you actually make peace with, you know, the variety of foods that exist and start to make choices according to what feels good to you in a given moment, not just based on what tastes good, but also how your body feels in a moment-to-moment fashion with food, which can apply to a lot of the conversations around intuition in general, not just with food, you know, this present moment decision-making process that can be changed. It's all you ever need. Exactly. It can evolve. It can change over time. I've already gone in so many different directions in the story, but essentially to wrap up how I got to where I am, it was a lot of working on changing my mindset around food and the way I think about food, my mentality around food. At some point, once I got to the point where I was seeking help and understood that there was something going on in my brain that was sabotaging me, there was something going on in my thinking that was hurting me. Then it was just a matter of doing as much studying as I could and learning as much as I could about food and psychology, you know, and really understanding. And that's when I started to realize, oh, when I t- completely put, you know, brownies off limits, all of a sudden all I want to eat is brownies because I feel like I'm sitting on my hands trying not to eat brownies like a little kid in a toy store being told not to touch the toys. These are the types of revelations that I started to have over time and many, many more, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into over the course of time. But that was my, my background was just serious diet binge cycler who kind of had this moment of revelation of thinking, okay, clearly dieting is not working for me. Clearly trying to solve this problem on the level of restriction or trying to control myself through willpower alone is not working. I need a new solution. I need a mental change. I need to have a mental, spiritual, if you will, overhaul of how I think about food.
0: Do you think if you had intuitively ate, instead of feeling this restriction and binging and all that stuff, do you think you would have naturally just been where you were supposed to be? If I had never been on a
1: diet before, I'm pretty sure that my body would have been fine. Dieting 100% caused cause, – I mean, I oftentimes go back and I think, I want to, like, slap my pediatrician upside the head. On some level, I'm like, I know you were doing your job, but do you realize the roller coaster that you sent me down that could easily have been avoided if I was just encouraged to, like, listen to my body and, you know, just be – and you know, get, get in touch with my – as
0: little kids are. Little kids will refuse food when they don't want to eat it. Yeah.
1: They, they know when they're full. Totally. In fact, kids are the best intuitive eaters, generally speaking. And then, of course, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, I often ask my clients, I'm like, how did you eat when you were a little kid? Like, Do you remember having – did you stuff yourself silly or do you remember having the experience of being full? Do you remember having the experience of being done? Now, again, not every dieter will have that memory. As I said, I had been dieting since I was three. So I have no memories of not being a diet binger, basically. I have no memories of feeling like, oh, I'm just going to have a few bites and be done when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was already obsessed. I was already, you know, that ship had sailed. I was already full
0: on in the diet binge cycle. It's interesting to think that you didn't seem to have any control issues. Like for me, there was stuff going on in my childhood, which I choose not to share because it involves other people that I couldn't control. Yep. So for me, I started as a high schooler and I couldn't fix it on this other problem. So I would focus on what I could control, which was what I ate. So you didn't have any other stuff you were trying to avoid or block out?
1: I think we all do. The vast majority of us who are trying to lose weight are trying to lose weight to control some sort of situation, right? Like, I want to be more attractive. I want to be more popular. 10-year-olds very rarely have the thought, oh, I want to lose weight for my cardiac health. Um, (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Unfortunately, the reality of the situation, we can talk about weight loss and health all day long, but unfortunately, the reality is most women in this country are trying to lose weight, not for health reasons, but to somehow make manage prejudice to manage the opinions of other people and to manage how we're perceived by the world and you know be more beautiful and be more attractive me xyz fill in the blank thing that you make thin mean that is an attempt to control in and of itself like you any attempt to lose weight for the purpose of changing the, your appearance which essentially means changing the way other people view you is inevitably a control mechanism of some kind. I personally believe that pretty much, and again, I always, I hesitate to use the word always because of course there are always exceptions to every rule and I've learned this lesson the hard way. I never use the term always, but usually every attempt at weight loss is, or most attempts at weight loss are an attempt to control something happening in the outside world.
0: Or distracting themselves I think that for me, the benefit of having perceived acceptance that would come or appreciation for your body, yeah, that's there. But for me, it was a distraction away from other things that I didn't want to look at or couldn't deal with. Yeah, it's dissociative. Let's talk about intuitive eating. I actually found this before I knew this was a thing based on Janine Roth's book, Women, Food, and God, and just decided after the nine years of drama, both ends of the spectrum to just eat what my intuition told me to eat until satisfied. But what is actual intuitive eating as it is now known? And and fill me in on everyone else listening about what intuitive eating means.
1: Well, it's funny. I actually like your definition the best, which is you know, listening to my intuition, which could mean things like hunger and fullness. It could mean things like how does my body feel physically, but it also could mean something deeper than that. It also could mean listening to that sort of inner knowing, which I actually really love your definition. Um, But that is not necessarily the classic definition of intuitive eating that we usually hear. Usually we hear the classic definitions of intuitive eating being more closely related to, you know, just listening to how your body feels physically in the more straightforward sense of that word. Like, are you hungry? Are you full? What kinds of foods are you physically craving right now? What foods would feel good in your body? Would a salad feel good in your body? Would a piece of red meat feel good in your body? What would feel good in your body?
0: The things we didn't have to think about before. (laughs) Exactly. The things that we as mammals are programmed to
1: hear and do. So one of the issues with dieting, one of the reasons why dieting screws so many people up is because when we diet, we essentially, we're screwing up our natural wisdom. So like a tiger in the jungle does not need to be told what to eat. In order to maintain whatever weight is healthful for it, right? These are, these are natural biological instincts and urges, hunger, fullness, knowing what to eat. We have instincts around food that are mammalian, that are human, that are biologically ingrained in us. We don't necessarily need to be told what to eat to make healthful choices. All of that insight is inside of us. One of the problems with the diet industry is that It kind of removes women from their signals. The diet industry teaches us to ignore our body's signals and what our bodies really want.
0: And listen to the ego all day long.
1: Totally, 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 right? Like, I'm hungry, but don't eat. You're not allowed to eat until 1 p.m. At 1 p.m. you can eat.
0: You know, that kind of a thing. I was terrified of hunger after nine years of all of the drama of the restriction and the binging. I was so uncomfortable with the physical sensation of hunger that... It was a bizarre experience to relearn how to feel hunger and fullness and not extreme stuffness and desperation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Fearing hunger is an experience that dieters learn. You know, when you're a baby, you don't fear hunger. You're just like, oh, I'm hungry. This is weird. Like, I want a breast. But when you're, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Give me milk. You don't anticipate hunger when you're a kid. You don't anticipate. And that's what fear really is, right? It's anticipation of something uncomfortable happening. But when you're a kid, you don't anticipate
0: the discomfort of hunger. It's just something that happens like, oh, my gosh, I have to pee. It's a body signal. It's all it is. And it tells you what you need to do. But oh, my God, I was so uncomfortable with the feeling of hunger and what that meant. Or like, was I now restricting because I felt hungry? I knew what it felt like to be over hungry for extreme periods of time. Oh, it was a really hard thing. Did you find it? hard? What was your experience like as you made the switch? Well, one of the reasons that
1: I was so terrified of my hunger, and I think this is an experience of dieters, is that I associated that feeling with a forced starvation, which is what dieting kind of is. As a dieter, my experiences with hunger were one of force and not of, hi, I'm a signal. You have to go to the bathroom now slash you have to go eat something now. You know, I'm a signal in your body telling you to do something. Um, In the past, I was constantly trying to deny my hunger. So I was constantly feeling hungry from a place of force, which was essentially, again, I mean, if you're hungry and purposely not eating, that's for starvation. Like that's essentially what it is at its core, um, which is very terrifying. That is
0: scary. I still remember eating clementines when I was starving as a restrictive high schooler. And I just, and I remember overeating at Olive Garden, like crazy as a college student to the point where I would learn that I'd have to put my legs up in the air I was terrified of throwing up more than any of the other eating issues aside. So I would stuff myself and then go, How can I soothe my aching stomach? Because I've completely obliterated it and li- not listened to its signals at all. And then I would lay on my back with my legs in the air because I figured that was the hardest way for my stomach to actually do anything about it.
1: Yeah. No, well, I mean, it's awful. I mean, so essentially, you know, when you are hungry and purposefully deny those hungers, your body doesn't know, Oh, she's just on a diet trying to shave off five pounds. Your body thinks, Oh my God, we're in famine, danger, the lions are after me, I'm going to die. Like that's what your body thinks. It's like your subconscious, like bu- your subconscious body is basically freaking out like oh my gosh, we're going to run out of fuel and this ship is going to go down. Like emergency, code red. It's terrifying, you know, it's really really anxiety producing. And so when we're first transitioning to intuitive eating, hunger can be really scary, almost like almost, and I hesitate to use this word, but almost in a PTSD kind of a way. Um, Like, ah, the last time I felt this, I thought that I was being
0: chased by wild animals. How did you eventually get over the ego's promise that if you keep trying to force that, you're more likely to have it happen than if you didn't? How did you get over that? because i remember very clearly standing in the express store one day talking to my mom on the phone telling her i was going to start doing this and she's like well if you're not trying to lose weight wouldn't and you just eat whatever your intuition tells you to eat wouldn't you just get bigger and i had to say you know what that is a completely possible outcome out of this. I don't know what is going to happen. I just know I want peace more than whatever the control might bring because I can say whether I was 103 pounds or way more than that on the other side of the scale, I was never peaceful. I was always worried about either gaining the weight if I was underweight or losing the weight if I was over. And I was—I had to just do the Janine Ross a, thing and say, I want peace more than this. How did you deal with your ego?
1: I have so much respect. For you, just for having said that, I feel like I understand you on a deeper level now, just from you having said that. Literally, the words that were about to come out of my mouth is that it, it is impossible to accomplish this unless you let go of the result.
0: Amen.
1: That's it. That is just it. You know, if you are attached to being a certain size and feel like, oh my gosh, I need to be this size or else, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually let go of control, right? I think letting go of control is one of those things. Sort of a weird thing because on the one hand, I often say it's not really letting go of control because so much of the time when we try to control, we end up losing it anyway and end up rebelling anyway. You squeeze it to death. Right. So it's like I'm not really giving up control so much as realizing how little control I have and working with that information instead of against it. Personally, I had to let go of the results for sure. I had to kind of say to myself, you know what? I just want to have the healthiest, mental, sane, happiest relationship with food that I possibly can.
0: What you kind of just said, and maybe you didn't mean this fully, but what I just got super pumped about is like, did you just mean like I want to have the healthiest mental state I possibly can instead of trying to fixate on the body? Yes. Oh, I love that.
1: I got to a point where, I mean, it's just so miserable, this diet binge cycle, you know, like weight schmate like you, like, (laughs) what I really wanted was peace, sanity, you know, what I really wanted was to be able to just go outside, have dinner with my friends, go home and not think about it ever again. I just wanted to be able to eat a sandwich like a quote unquote normal person and not worry about it. And similarly on the body image front, I wanted to be able to like go out in a bathing suit and just like have a good time in the pool, not constantly be worrying about like how I look in my bathing suit. So that's sort of the secondary half of fixing this problem is body image, which is a whole nother can of worms. (laughs) I got to a point where I just like, I just want sanity. I just want my peace of mind back or for the first time maybe. Yeah, you did not even have a memory. <laughs> I mean, I know that I got crazier and crazier as, as time went on. <laughs> this is progressive, this diet binge cycling. It's progressive for most people. It usually gets worse, not better until you let go. What age were you when you let go? So I started doing research about letting go when I was 19, but I don't think I actually let go until I was 24.
0: And how many years have you been on the other side?
1: Six. And what's it been like since then? I would say it's been amazing. Life is amazing. And it is. I mean, food is no longer an issue for me. And that is the biggest blessing ever because, I mean, for so long, food was my Everest. Food was the one thing in my life that I just thought if I could just get this down, I would never ask for anything ever again. I'd be happy. Yeah, I'd be happy. And the thing is, is I am so hashtag blessed to feel freed from this food conversation. Right, Like food is not something I worry about. I actually do go to dinner with my friends, eat what I want, leave and not think about it. And it's easy. And my body weight has been the same for the past six years. You know, like my weight just is what it is. This is clearly my natural genetic weight. It just is what it is. I eat what I want. I don't really use willpower around food all that much. It's natural. It's effortless. It is what it is. However, I will say when I kind of got the food under control, so just
0: everything else flared up, didn't it? Yeah. I'm like,
1: well, now I worry about boys and work and, you know, I mean, I'm still human
0: your ego has like, it's like a dog. I often use it as either a fire hydrant or explain it as a dog that's barking and scared. And a dog has, at least my dogs, have these like favorite chew toys. My dog Ellie loves hooves. She loves chewing on a hoof. And so she will get into a chewing phase and she will fixate on one toy so much that she's not playing with the others very much. And so for like your entire life, you had this one hoof, (laughs) this one chew toy. And then... Once you know the ego doesn't get that chew toy, you're like, enough with this chew toy. It's not smelling good at all. We're, g- we're just going to throw this away. Then it needs to go find another thing. It has time and attention to go give to these other chew toys, and it starts picking or fixating on other areas. Did it have any transfer addictions for me? My eating issues transfer to my work. I didn't realize it until recently, but my self worth started to be coming from an ego's perspective in subtle ways from work rather than food.
1: How about for yourself? I had the same experience. I also really like that you said my self-worth started to be attached because that's actually how I define a diet. I define a diet as a way of eating to which we are emotionally attached or to which our self-esteem is attached.
0: Someone could tell you, I just really, really want to look great in the bikini and be this amount of weight on an island alone. It's important for me. It doesn't matter what other people think. It's just important to me to weigh X pounds or look like this in the bikini. If you didn't know that that's what society wanted you to look like or that that's good for you, Based on what you have learned, you would not even know on an island to think about a bikini or what you looked like in it or anything. Or if society valued heaviness like it has historically, that you would be like, it's just important to me to be heavy and fat in this bikini, right? Because you would just be internalizing external expectations amen oh
1: my god i like you even more now i mean people always say oh no no no, isabel it's not society i just like want to be fit for be confident right
0: all that's happening your ego is bought into it and says i'm only going to actually this is something from brooke casillo's episode such a good one she says no you've told yourself if you ever have this with this happens i'll feel that he said she says you've restricted yourself from feeling that emotion until some circumstances changed when the truth is you have total capacity to feel that emotion without that circumstance, you're just restricting it from yourself until X happens.
1: Totally. Everything that I ever thought that I would get when I was thin is something that realistically I could create for myself at any weight.
0: Did your weight actually shift at all after you dropped the drama or did it stay the same? Well, it's hard to say because
1: I was heavier in high school than I am now. So at the height of my binge eating, when I first saw clinical help and was working with therapists and stuff for binge eating, I was, this is a more R-rated version of my story, but I was abusing diet, like diet pills and stimulants and other drugs to try and control my weight. So I had lost my weight. That's one of the reasons why I got into treatment was because I went down the very dangerous path. It wasn't just Snickers bars or hunger. For yeah, you. no, no, no. I, I was using drugs too to try and control my weight. I had lost a little weight from my highest. So the answer is I am smaller than my highest weight ever. But when I transitioned to intuitive eating, I, I didn't lose weight. I just stayed the same from where i was at that point and
0: you're stable and you're where you're supposed to be and I always tell my clients
1: so one of my big things in my branding and my marketing as a business person is that I don't sell weight loss I don't ever tell anyone you will lose weight when you do this because I don't actually know what weight you're supposed to be and where you are relative to that weight now and so that's huge 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 big pillar thing for my business is something that is definitely I think differentiates me from a lot of other emotional eating coaches and, and binge eating people out there Everyone's going to have a different experience with their weight when they adopt intuitive eating. What I know is that when you have a healthful mental relationship with food, you are much more likely to have a healthful physical relationship with food and you are much more likely to be whatever weight you were meant to be. You were supposed to be that is healthful and natural for you as an individual. What that is or where you are relative to that now, I don't know.
0: Exactly. One of the things I had to do, I think this is an interesting thing for myself i'm curious if you had any of these little phases i had a few different seasons of this so the first thing i found is my ego was like well if you're eating what your intuition tells you eat you're never going to eat ice cream so i decided very clearly and deliberately to prove that wrong right from the start so i actually started giving myself every night right after i made this decision to start eating a small bowl of ice cream but the point of it was not to finish the ice cream the point was to eat until i was satisfied It was to stop before it was done and it wasn't a very big bowl and it was to pay attention bite by bite to when that moment happened and get better at actually letting go of food. I even have friends that have eating issues that are like, well, it's going to go to waste. And it's like, well, do you need to have it in your body or does it need to go in the trash? Could you give it to someone? Can you donate it? Can you just, we don't need to eat it just so that it doesn't go in the trash. Like we're no better off in our bodies for being the trash can.
1: You eating it doesn't keep it from going to starving babies in Africa. That's the truth. If I eat it or don't eat it, either way, that ice cream is probably not going to starving babies. So let's just relax and put it where it feels best for us relative to how we feel physically. Oh. We are not a garbage can. You know, I really love that story also about sort of uh, the training wheels around ice cream, because I think there is definitely the school of thought around emotional eating of like, oh, my gosh, that's my trigger food. It's just out of control around it. And perhaps at one point in someone's life, that's true. But I think ultimately the goal is to be able to make peace with foods and not feel controlled by food to actually practice you know, with foods that you once binged on and actually be able to one at a time, one food by perhaps one by one in some instances, learn, oh, I can actually be around ice cream and not completely lose my mind.
0: Part of my body's healing process to this was I ate small portions I'd eat half the burger or I'd eat macaroni and cheese and craft beers and all of these really rich foods that weren't quote unquote healthy. I just made sure that I ate until I was satisfied. And that was all I was willing to do at that point. I wasn't willing to go drink green juices. I wasn't there yet. And it wasn't like I was only eating crappy food. So I don't want people to think like, oh, she's just, just eating junk. But I was eating a good amount of that stuff. I was just very natural about it and I wouldn't overeat it. I ate small doses and this is again, on this whole quote unquote decline actually. I was losing weight through doing this, but I think my body or my, not even body, my soul needed to heal from thinking that it couldn't eat those foods. And for a while that was where I was at and that was okay. Eventually I had to make it to the next chapter after going and eating this amazing fiery chipotle burger thing, uh, we were at Trader Joe's and I had the heartburn. And I was like, wait, this isn't feeling good. Like, yes, I enjoyed the burger, but now I think I'm ready to start eating. And I just had this gentle shift. And I was like, okay, I can eat a salad and it doesn't mean I have an eating disorder. Did you have any of those kind of little stepping stones or little soul healing moments? Oh, yeah. I mean,
1: that's sort of the the classic trajectory on intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is the practice of eating what you're traditionally right and I'm mainly referencing the book called Intuitive Eating which is a book by a woman named Evelyn Right, I never know how to pronounce her name but it's R-E-S-C-H um, and she's sort of another one of the godmothers of intuitive eating and she always says you know intu- it, intuitive eating starts with a foundation of legalizing foods which means bringing foods that you had previously restricted and put off limits and actually allowing yourself to have them once you do the legalization part and actually make peace with foods and like feel like you can eat those foods what ends up happening initially is that you start to more and more get in touch with actually what your body really wants to eat. And you start to realize like, wait, how does this food actually make me make me feel now that I'm allowed to eat it? Do I want to eat it?
0: Yes, that is what I had to get to. And it took me honestly, because I wasn't eating all of it only I was very moderate about how much of that stuff I was eating. It kind of flared up towards like a few years later, it wasn't this immediate thing, but I guess if I was only eating that kind of stuff, I maybe would have got there sooner.
1: Oh, and I think that it's—I mean, it's different different time periods for different people, and I think that absolutely, yeah, it just—it's—it's it's, that's a process that is totally individual, and and usually doesn't just happen overnight. Um, absolutely not. I mean, for me, I had moments where. You know, when I was first allowing myself to eat foods, I was eating mostly crappy food because I was just, I just emotionally wanted the foods that I had put off limits. I wanted to have the experience of being able to eat a brownie without hating myself.
0: Yes. Yes. And you need to kind of feel like that. You need to sometimes own things before you let go of them.
1: Totally. So I remember when I first transitioned to intuitive eating, I was e- eating a lot more crappy foods because I was really just in what we I call it the legalization phase. You know, you're going through the phase where you're making peace with the foods that you previously shamed yourself for, or previously restricted yourself around. But what ended up happening is I wouldn't feel good when I was eating those foods. You know, I just physically wouldn't feel good. So I was allowed to eat them. But if I ate too much or whatever happened, I would have a moment where I'd be like, oh, biofeedback. This doesn't feel great. And then I'd be like, oh, this is so weird. I can't believe I'm actually craving a salad. I'm not forcing myself to eat a salad. I'm actually craving a salad. And those kinds of moments happened more and more frequently as time went on. And it's never 100%. Obviously, like, definitely eat brownies today. And I definitely eat hamburgers and macaroni and cheese today. I find myself just choosing, purely choosing, not because I have to, because I want to choosing vegetables, choosing food that make my body feel good, that nourish me physically more and more often just because I like the way it feels to feel good. I want to have energy throughout my day. I don't want to have blood sugar spikes and crashes I think that the more we relinquish shame around food, the more we legalize, the more we stop living in diet mentality, the more we actually allow ourselves to make empowered choices. And the operative word here being choice, eating vegetables was never a choice for me before. It was, you should do this.
0: Yes, the shoulds.
1: Now that I'm in intuitive eating, every time I choose to eat a salad, it's because I choose to eat a salad because I want to eat a salad because I know it's going to feel really good in my body. And that's the only reason why I choose it.
0: Is that the seasons? Like I said, I've just, like, done this. I don't really know the frameworks around it. So after legalization, what's the next phase? Listening to your body. That's it? There's just two phases?
1: (laughs) Listening to your body is broken down into a few different things. And again, this I'm not directly quoting the intuitive eating book now because Janine Roth has a similar take on it in her... I don't know if you ever read Breaking Free from Emotional Eating, but that was where the first book where she outlined her intuitive eating guidelines.
0: Oh, I probably would have loved it. I just read the other one. Oh, yeah, you would have loved it.
1: But she essentially... Even Jeannie Roth, the way she outlines is first things first, let yourself eat what you want. Secondly, second, after that, only after that, I want you to ask yourself the question, now that you are allowing yourself to eat what you want, what does your body actually want? What do you actually want when you actually take into consideration how you feel physically? Not just, oh my gosh, I want the taste of sugar on my tongue. How would this brownie feel in my body? Can I get in touch with how my body's actually feeling here and allow that to guide my choices around food?
0: Well, here's the interesting thing for me on this journey. So I have like a new phase of this and the people that have been following me for a while know that this has been a part of my journey recently is my hormones and endocrine system. If you've listened to the Lisa Vd episode, Lively.com slash Elisa Vitti, I am working on... Glowing and thriving is my values because I don't know if the outcomes of actually getting my period for the first time when I go off the pill or actually getting pregnant later will happen. So I don't know if those outcomes will happen. So I'm using my values and living them them because those are fulfilling me regardless of what the future holds. But part of it is based on my history with PCOS, um, my body may have sensitivities to gluten and dairy that might be hurting those other things and these other systems in my body. So. I'm now letting go of those. I feel great, but here's the thing. I did not realize before this journey that I would feel so much better without the gluten and dairy, which is such a weird thing to say because I feel like I would have had to figure this out through a diet, which would have totally messed up the whole drama. What are your thoughts on something like this, where you have all these eating issues and restrictions, but then by choosing from a different place, like it actually might help you feel better than you ever thought you could. That's sort of my
1: take on intuitive eating with medical restrictions, so to speak. Meaning what happens if I know that, where does legalization fit in when I know that a certain food will make me sick and my response to that or not make me feel good or impact. And my response to that is ultimately, you know, that is part of intuitive eating. Part of intuitive eating is your body is giving you signals that is information, and there's all sorts of places to get information about what your body needs. Ultimately, I think the, the, the experience of, let's say, getting your period or not getting your period as a result of eating a certain food, that is biofeedback. That is, could, you could make the argument- Is intuitive. Is intuitive. It is biofeedback from your body. It's not hunger and fullness. You know, people get really hung up on hunger and fullness when they talk about intuitive eating. And I, and I kind of want to address that for anyone who's listening who is already familiar with intuitive eating. You know, people get really hung up on this idea of like eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. And that's where it ends. Up until now.
0: Honestly, after nine years, I was like, I'm done
1: with this subject. <laughs> but intuitive eating can actually go way deeper than that. I mean, intuitive eating is just, I think of it as—it it is the process of listening to your body. Think about how deep that can go. You know, using your body as the sort of benchmark for which you start to evaluate your choices around food rather than evaluating your choices around food based on what other people are telling me to eat, based on diet blogs, based on what Dr. Oz says, et cetera, et cetera. Something like what you're experiencing is basically somebody told you, right? Let's just say, you know, Alyssa or anyone else, right? oh, maybe gluten and dairy might affect your cycle. That's outside information. But ultimately, when you play with it and you notice that your body does have a response, that's internal information.
0: I feel better. I don't know if I would have noticed the contrast had I not binged on the dairy and the gluten for such an extended period of time to really see the effects. I think before I was always kind of having a low level of suffering and I never saw it as suffering. I just thought that's how, I, how life is because I was so used to that just being standard. Then I felt bad, bad. And I was like, this is worse than I felt before. I need to change this. And I took those things out and everything got so much better. It, it like kind of bounced even higher than it was before. And it's just an interesting place to be in. And also it kind of makes me think about the holidays and things that are coming up, how to now look at all of these things in context with one another.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because just so intuitive eating, again, moving, we're moving away now from being on the hunger and fullness diet. Which is what I call intuitive eating that doesn't take into consideration the fact that, you know, a lot of things impact your body around food and that your body is, a, is an organism that's interacting with food all the time, right? It's not as black and white as, am I hungry? Am I full? Okay, eat if you're hungry, don't eat if you're full, and that's it. And that's where it ends, you know? Um, intuitive eating is really, it's just like intuitive eating. It's a lot of There is gray area and it's about being really intuitive in the true sense of that word of what feels right to me right now, what doesn't, which is of course impacted by the way our bodies feel physically, but also could be impacted by things like I'm at a social event enjoying myself on Christmas Eve and I really want to partake in this you know, beautiful, delicious, like Christmas cake or whatever it might be. You know, maybe my body doesn't necessarily need this right now, but it's something that I choose to indulge in for emotional or social reasons. And that's not necessarily wrong. And I think that that's another thing that I really like to talk about with emotional eating is emotional eating gets like this obviously horrible rap. And I think emotional eating obviously, you know, has its has its issues, right? But um, it's not, you're not breaking the law, right? Like you're allowed to have a cupcake once in a while just because you want to have the pleasure of a cupcake. I make choices on a moment-to-moment basis with food based on what feels good to me and right to me in that moment. At the intuition level rather than not rather than the compulsive level. So because I think intuition is kind of inherently mindful. It's an inherently conscious state of being. Being attached to your intuition is conscious. it's aware. When we're eating the whole cake, generally speaking, I mean you could theoretically eat a whole cake in a conscious, mindful way, but you're probably not. One of the biggest issues we see with intuitive eating or one of the biggest pitfalls, I call it an intuitive eating pitfall that people fall into is this um, hunger, fullness, black and white thinking around intuitive eating, which again, for a lot of people, just acknowledging hunger and fullness, as I'm sure this was the case with you, is like the biggest deal ever. It's like, oh my God, that just saved my life. But I think the next level beyond that is realizing like okay, and there's gray in between, and emotional eating isn't necessary, or eating something outside of the context of hunger and fullness isn't shameful, it's not inherently wrong, but can I do it in an intuitive, conscious, aware way?
0: That's an interesting challenge for some people, depending where you are. Oh, totally, totally. And again, this is everything we're talking about in this episode.
1: Sometimes we're talking about things that can be applicable to very beginners, and sometimes we're talking about more advanced concepts. This is definitely a more advanced concept. But um for those people who are asking myself, well, what happens when I, you know, go to dinner at 7 p.m. and I'm not hungry at 7 p.m. But I'm having dinner with my, you know, fiancé's parents and I want to make a good impression, you know, whatever. And I don't think anyone should ever be pressured into eating anything. But I do think that if you choose to have a little something. You might not be super hungry, but you can eat something. You're you're a you're a human being. You're an adult, grown woman or man. You are allowed to eat something when you're not hungry if you consciously choose to do so.
0: With gluten and dairy, it's kind of consciously made a big choice to do so, and I've been feeling better. So I'm like, part of me is like just kind of riding that, but I don't want it to become this like chain that I have never broken. And therefore it becomes this law in my life. I want this to continue to be a choice the way it is with my meat, because I don't feel that way about the meat. I'm very fluid and I recognize someday maybe I won't eat the lobster at all. But right now I feel like I'm not freaking out. It's not off limits. It's a choice every time. And I want to just make sure I don't get down the rabbit hole too far where I feel like it's bad. Exactly. I mean, you don't have to put
1: something off limits or else in order to not do it. Maybe you just don't do it because you don't want to do it in that moment. But that doesn't mean that you have it. There's a huge psychological and emotional difference between I am not allowed to eat this thing and I choose not to eat this thing right now. And I choose this not to eat this thing now again right now and now again right now.
0: Yeah, so that's where values can be so powerful for people. As for me, the glowing and thriving doesn't mean I couldn't eat dairy. Like that is not a part of glowing and thriving necessarily. It could be an extension of that. It could be an action I take because I would like to glow. And if I feel like it's providing that, great. But it doesn't mean that I couldn't still glow in some way that might involve a small dose of it at the same time. Right, I mean, ultimately
1: your decisions in the moment are gonna be heavily impacted by the urgency of your goal goals. If you're in a point, and I hope I'm using this verbiage correctly, because earlier before the air, we had a very interesting conversation about the difference between intentions and goals. But I think I said that correctly.
0: Yeah, goals are just a specific metric or achievement done by a specific time and place where a goal is enduring and present moment focused. It's flexible. It's present. It's innately fulfilling because it's not about an achievement being hit, it's about embodying the value in that moment. I'm so into this. I really
1: like this this distinction. I'm gonna use it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Values-based intentions. They're they're
1: awesome. It's awesome. So yeah, so you know, essentially if, if you have an urgent goal to achieve, right? Like if I just had a heart attack, um, I probably have a fire under my eye to make different dietary choices because the urgency is is there for me, right? Like I do not want to have another heart attack.
0: <laughs> but hopefully you'd also have a value of like, I wanna live for my children and, or like the, actually that's an outcome really, but I wanna like thrive or something. And then you're like, yeah. So as a result, totally. this heart attack is the outcome of not doing whatever might be thriving. I would
1: imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that goals and intentions in influence one another.
0: Here's the biggest difference. So we are taught by society to make a goal list or a vision board. And if you have or do those things, you'll be happy and you'll be at the top of success mountain. It doesn't work. Goals are tools like scissors are tools. So your value should inform and direct your goals, not the other way around. So my value is glowing and thriving. And so as an action... I choose to experiment with this gluten and dairy-free thing. If I didn't feel like I was glowing and thriving doing that, or if eventually some at some point meat, meat's a difficult one for me because I'm actually eating for the animal, not for glowing and thriving. So it's kind of a different thing and I have to come to terms with that. But if for some reason, let's say I've heard of some vegetarians um, not eating meat long enough that like they're not glowing and thriving anymore and the meat actually helps them do that. And if they didn't have the the killing animals thing problem I have, then they might choose to add more meat back into their diet as an extension of their values. Glowing and thriving is my values because that's what I can do right now. It's flexible. It's present moment. It's not waiting till I go off the pill when I try to have a kid or any of those other things I can't control. I can't control. They say like you couldn't control and I couldn't control the weight, right? We tried to control the weight and it was just not, it's not in our control. (laughs) That is not as much as we try. It's not in our control. So what I do cannot make myself have a baby. You can take actions that might produce that result, but you can. there's still unexplained infertility that's rampant right now, right? You can't make it happen. So you live your values, and then the goal eventually will be to have a baby, but I will know that as a result of that, I'll try different things. I'll maybe try for a while the gluten and dairy-free thing. If that doesn't work and I keep going and going, and eventually I feel led to try some other fertility things, I could try those things, the goal being the baby, but ultimately I all along the way don't wanna let go of the sight of that I can embody my values of glowing and thriving at every step, regardless of whether I get the goal or the outcome I'm seeking. Because that's the reason dieting doesn't work. We're saying it's only good enough if I get to this outcome and you're not guaranteed the outcome, so you self-sabotage because your ego ultimately just wants you to waste your time not getting there so it can stay in control of the drama in the first place. Does that make sense? Right.
1: I'm really hanging on to this idea of instead of having a goal and then, you know, changing your intentions to fit the goal, you're figure out what your intentions or your values are. Figure out
0: And then what is a tool that you could use to embody that in a specific direction? Right? Like, oh, I want to do it in this way. Right now I'm just going and thriving, but right now that's not the goal.
1: Or like a value, a value or intention could be like, I have a value of family. And maybe the, when I say the, and my goal is having a kid, meaning, and I think maybe working towards having a kid could be a really great way to express my value of family But if I don't have a kid, there are other ways to express my value of family, basically.
0: Yes. Actually, there's a woman in my class who had infertility, and she was struggling and really, really in a lot of pain, as many women that have infertility are. And so we talked about this through email, and she shared this. I go, what is your value? Why is it so important to you to have a child? Not from the outcome level, but why is it important to you? I think she said something along the lines of she really wanted to give of herself and nurture or something like that. So I think it was giving and nurture. We'll just use that for this. Example. And I said, Are you surrounding yourself in your current circumstances in ways that you can give and nurture right now without a child? And she said, No, actually, she's been avoiding her nieces and nephews or godchildren. I forget. She had a few that she'd avoided them because she thought it would bring up too much pain. And I actually challenged her and I said, Give this a shot. I don't know what's going to happen because this is a very sensitive subject. And I'm just going on principles here. I'm just going on the process and trusting that this, you embodying your values and really leaning on that philosophy will work. And I asked her what happened and she said it totally changed everything. I don't know if she has a child now or not, but I know that she actually found more pain and suffering through restricting herself from embodying her values in the present moment than she did actually just being around the kids and and at least giving in the ways that she can right now in the, in like her current circumstances. That's why I'm not using the goal of having the period or the baby as my reason for doing the, the gluten and dairy free. Cause I have no idea if that's going to happen. And if, if it doesn't happen, or I can also say that's three months from now, I'm not going to do it now. I'm not going to worry about it now. I don't have to think about it now, but ultimately I'm just kicking the can and I'm going to be way less likely to actually ever make that shift or It's going to be too little too late than if I just start thinking, like, I really don't feel good right now. How can I glow and thrive? Maybe this is a piece of it. And I'm not going to feel like a failure for three months if I don't eat gluten and dairy if I don't get pregnant or if I don't get... The period. I'm gonna know I have this feedback. I have this experience. At every point of this, I was at least living the values I could embody given right. the circumstances.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think I'm so obsessed with this conversation. I'm so. It's so. <laughs> I, and I, I will say it's awesome to like be learning this in this interview. Um. So, and as, and I'm just thinking as it relates to weight and food, right? Yes. So a value. I feel like my value around food, for instance, is well, one of the many is like physical and mental health. And whatever my weight ends up being when I am living my values of mental health and, and physical health, we'll put, we'll put them both in there. They're both important to me. They're both values of mine. When I'm embodying mental and physical health, wherever my weight ends up is what it should be. I will say, when I am making choices around food, when I am having my food choices be guided by my goals of wanting to be thinner, it almost always backfires, as opposed to when I make choices around food out of my just pure value and love of wanting to eat to make myself feel well. Totally different ballgame. Like, totally, totally different outcome. I mean, that is one thing I know more than any. I mean, that's basically, that is the heart of my work, really. That's the reality is that when we're letting our goals run the show, oftentimes that will change our behaviors, not always for the better.
0: In the short term, it's highly motivating and it feels really good. In the long term, it's draining and exhausting, either backfire on you or say that this is not good enough. Your ceiling becomes your floor. What you once reached for will become not enough. So you have to reach for something even bigger the next time.
1: My experience with food and pretty much outlines my philosophy around how we should all be transitioning our mental health relationship with food.
0: I love that. I love your mental health is what you started focusing on. as, And then as a result of your mental health, the actions you took changed and your physical health improved it's stabilized at least if nothing else. Yeah, it's stabilized. I
1: mean, yeah, I mean, my weight's the same, but I would say that my, I mean, my behaviors, even though my weight, first of all, even though my weight, I'll just say this, even though my weight's the same, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at the perfectly healthful natural weight for where I'm supposed to be. And I happened to be at the time, but I wasn't healthy at the time because my behaviors were so crazy. I mean, that's the thing is my weight didn't change at all, but I am totally healthy. I'm so much more physically healthier my blood sugar levels are, are probably substantially better. I'm not, you know, upping and I'm not crashing and spiking and crashing and spiking. You know, my, I would imagine my blood pressure is stabled out. You know, a lot of things I am just a, my physical health has absolutely improved even staying the same weight. And I, th- I think that that's really important and relevant to understand too. Cause I think a lot of people think that weight and health, you know, they kind of say, Oh, they're, they're the same thing. Or my weight is a measurement of my health. And that's not necessarily true. So, and there's a lot of ways to measure health outside of weight. So like the fact that I'm the same weight, but my eating is so much more stable. My blood sugar is more stable. You know, I'm not doing this yo-yo dieting up and down crash thing anymore. You know, that's, that's a huge deal.
0: I love it. Okay. This is supposed to have been about holidays. (laughs) So... Let's quickly give a nod to the holidays. How can we look at the holiday eating and traditions intuitively? I think that one
1: thing that I love, and we didn't really get to talk about this, but this is something actually that Jenna Laflamme, who is um, somebody who I've learned a lot from, taught me is this idea that when we're engaging in pleasure and enjoyment consciousness and awareness actually usually goes with pleasure and enjoyment and so i really encourage everyone to enjoy themselves over the holiday and really take the time to be present for their holidays you are much more likely to also enjoy food in a mindful aware way which really has become the theme of this conversation you know I think that mindfulness and intuition really go together. So I will leave you with that. I hope that you enjoy your holiday season as much as possible and the foods in it and really take the time to be present and taste your food and be mindful and aware of the choices you're making without guilting yourself, without shaming yourself. And notice that you are, when you are living from a place of enjoyment and mindfulness, you're able to make intuitive choices that feel right to you at any given moment without being in that black or white on or off the wagon mentality.
0: For yourself, do you still have any ego resistance pop up or try to take you off of this focus? For
1: me, right now, it's definitely more in other areas of my life. I love that you mentioned work because I really notice that in work. I mean, I notice my my ego comes up in my work more than anywhere else. But I do think that you know. When it comes to the food health conversation, which is not necessarily maybe about weight, but just about like health being right or wrong, you know, we can very much moralize, mean, make right or wrong health decisions, which backfires, right? Instead of this whole right or wrong is totally ego, as opposed to what choice do I want to make right now based on the values that I want to live in this moment? So that's what I'll just say, you know, I'll just sort of leave it at that, because this is a much bigger conversation than we probably have in the few minutes that we're wrapping up. But I will say that that's what I would, I would have people focus on um, letting go of the morality, the right or wrong, black and white thinking as much as they can, not just around, you know, dieting and weight, but also around health itself, and really start to think about is health a value for me in this moment? If it is, then I can make choices accordingly. Or maybe it's not maybe in a particular moment, what's what's your greatest value is having fun and socializing. And that's okay, too. You ultimately get to make choices about your health. We don't need to as a society decide that one choice is right or wrong in a moralistic framework.
0: What doubts or internal resistance are you facing in your life right now?
1: For me, the two areas are romance and work. I think that I guess because I've already spoken about work I'll talk about romance and I'm sure that any man that I happen to be even marginally involved with will be very embarrassed by this. But but yeah, but I think that it, you know I'm I'm really really learning how to trust myself in the area of relationships right now. That's something that's coming up for me hugely. I am one of those people who up until very recently in my life I constantly was asking people for advice like what do you think? 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 I didn't trust that maybe what was right for me was going to come from inside and might be completely different than what other people thought.
0: Going to the phone rather than the throne, as uh, Joyce Meyer says. (laughs)
1: Yes! Oh my God, I'm just learning about this. I'm like so late to this boat. But yeah, that's something that I'm I'm really working through. I am really working on right now going to throne instead of the phone. That's sort of my ultimate thing right now. I actually thought about making a, a... Speaking of intention, setting the intention for myself of, or setting the goal of myself of not asking for advice around men.
0: Well, actually, though, you can make it a value. And then the goal would be not to tell it to your friends, but the value could be I'm going to look inward rather than outward. But you don't even say rather than outward. I'm going to look inward for my guidance in this area.
1: Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah,
0: nailed it. There we go. Done. That's my new intention and my new goal what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey?
1: People who are just starting to relinquish traditional dieting, it's really scary. This is a big deal. This is not an overnight fix. You've got to be willing to show some serious compassion and empathy for yourself and really work slowly with this. I mean, one of the issues that dieters face all the time is that most dieters, they're, they're strongest at dieting on day one and then it kind of crumbles from there. With intuitive eating, it's the opposite. It starts hard and it and it gets easier with practice. It's like learning a language. You actually literally are learning a language, the language of your body. You know, you don't just wake up and speak French. You have to learn how to speak French <laughs> over time. you like, maybe you can say hello. Then you can say hello and goodbye. Then maybe you can string a whole sentence together. And I think that in- learning intuitive eating is much more like that versus dieting, which, you know, we're always the best at our diet on day one and then kind of crumble from there. So it's the opposite with intuitive eating.
0: I love that, by the way. I've never heard that said, but that is such a beautiful way to illustrate. Are we being guided by the ego or the intuition?
1: Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. A hundred percent. The ego always is, it's the strongest day one. And then like things start to backfire from there. Whereas intuition builds. Yeah. And so, and we learn it and we develop it and we strengthen it over time and that is absolutely true with food and intuitive eating and relinquishing traditional dieting which we haven't even begun to get into the difficulties that people come into when they're relinquishing traditional dieting I mean there's a lot of issues here body image stuff which we didn't even really get to talk about so much if you if you are doing this if this is an area that you're looking into I highly recommend you go check out my blog where I talk about a lot of other topics that we, unfortunately we didn't have time to cover today but that would be my number one thing is you've got to give yourself a break you Got to treat yourself with compassion and empathy while you go through this journey because it is probably not going to happen overnight. This stuff takes time.
0: Ah, uh, Isabel, this has been a journey and a joy. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for having me. I love that you were,
1: you know, have, have a personal story with this. You know, I often talk to interviewers who don't—they don't have their own personal story, so it, it's it, not—we can't get quite into the details as much. So, I mean, this was just such a pleasure to be here. So, thank you so much for having me.
0: And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Isabel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Huge high five. If you'd like to send Isabel a message, you can do so over on Instagram and Twitter. She is at Isabel Foxen Duke. And you could find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter at Jess C as in Cranberry Sauce Lively. For show notes, you can go over to JessLively.com slash Isabel Foxen Duke. And before I share who's coming up next week on the show, let's talk with Lively Show listener and today's episode sponsor, Andrea Montgomery, about her jewelry company, andreamontgomery.com. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to share you with the listeners since you are a fellow Lively Show listener as well. Tell us about yourself.
2: My name is Andrea Montgomery. I live in Houston, Texas, and I'm a jewelry designer. I've got three boys under the age of five who are just precious um, and a darling husband. And we uh, recently moved back here from San Francisco. I grew up in Houston, but we're recently back. That's awesome. And how did your jewelry business get started? I've been doing this for 15 years now. After I graduated from college, I majored in business and English, which are kind of a unique fit for a jewelry designer, I'm sure. <laughs> I started out working on an energy trading floor. I traded natural gas for a while, and then I did risk management consulting, and then finally I was the director of risk management for a hedge fund. All the while, I designed jewelry on the side, which was a really great, girly, creative outlet for me in a very male-dominated industry. And it was my passion, so I just kept doing it even though I was working nonstop all day at work and all night and on the weekends and the jewelry.
0: And then how did you get going full-time?
2: So my husband and I moved to San Francisco for him to do residency and fellowships there. That just seemed like a natural transition time. I was really working so hard doing stuff at night. I decided we either needed to make it go full time or stop doing it. We did that and thankfully it worked and it's been a lot of fun. I got a little more formal training in metalsmithing at Revere Academy and of Jewelry Arts in San Francisco and then at Glassell School of Art here in Houston. My designs really began to evolve and get more sophisticated. Quite frankly, I had to support our family while he was going through that training time. We had two small children at the time, and I stayed up most nights making jewelry on the guest bed. (laughs) It's so important to support small businesses these days. 100 years ago, that was just the normal way of life. Right now, everything has changed. And it's so crucial to use your money to support things and people that you believe in. There were a lot of times that people bought from me in San Francisco that it made the difference in my child, you know, being able to play soccer or go to music class. Every time you spend your money, you're affecting so many people, whether that's factory workers in another country or somebody like me supporting a family locally.
0: It's amazing. Actually, you told me about the True Cost documentary.
2: You know, it's it's eye opening because you don't really notice and you really make a huge difference in the lives of real people every time you spend money. We don't often stop to think about. So
0: let's go back to the jewelry. When would we wear this? What are the materials you use, etc.? My designs are simple. They're
2: made to be worn every day. They are made with precious and semi-precious gemstones, freshwater pearls and diamonds. Then I offer things at varying price points the least expensive thing is probably around $35 or $45. And the most goes all the way up to as high as you can think. My designs are definitely feminine and they're timeless. They're meant to be long lasting additions to your wardrobe and they can be worn by themselves with a t-shirt and jeans or layered up with a cozy sweater and tall boots for kind of a bigger look.
0: So I know you have something special for Lively Show listeners for this holiday season. Would you mind sharing what that is?
2: Absolutely. So my website, andreamontgomery.com, you can sign up for an email newsletter. I always do a 12 days of Christmas deals. The first 12 days of December, we offer 40% off of one item each day just to help people fill out their holiday shopping list. And for your listeners, we'd also like to offer 20% off of everything else on the website through Christmas using the code lively. And again, that's at andreamontgomery.com.
0: Awesome. I can't wait to go check it out and use that code myself. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you having me, Jess. And now for a sneak peek. Next week on the show, we are diving into the world of the Enneagram. I personally was pretty unfamiliar with the world of Enneagram before I asked Lee Kramer of LeeKramer.com to come on the show and share what the Enneagram is all about. This will be a fascinating episode for anyone like myself who loves the Myers-Briggs or the StrengthsFinder assessments and loves learning more about ourselves so we can relate to the world in a better, more powerful way. This episode is exactly that. In addition, I specifically have it airing right before we're heading home for the holidays on Wednesday next week, so that we can either A, use it to share with our family members if our family dynamics and the holidays are really light and fun, or B, if our family dynamics might be a little trickier and we might have more emotional reactions to our family members. It will be a very fascinating look at not just where we're coming from and how we can come from a better place, but also how to have more compassion and empathy for the family members in our lives that might trigger us as well. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today.